This is President Ron Herrera, and you are listening to Welcome to Uniontown, a podcast that delves into the everyday issues, iconic leaders, and allies of the labor movement. We get to know the backstories of workers and the journey of leaders, from their first job to their greatest victory. The show covers every aspect of the Los Angeles labor movement, from the desert to the sea. Today, we welcome to Uniontown Dr. Melina Abdullah. She is professor and chair of Pan-African Studies at California State University, Los Angeles, and a proud CFA union member. Dr. Abdullah earned her PhD from the University of Southern California in political science and her BA from Howard University in African American Studies. She is a recognized expert on race, gender, class, and social movements, and Abdullah is the author of numerous scholarly articles and book chapters, with subjects ranging from political coalition building to womanist mothering. She is also the co-founder of Black Lives Matter Los Angeles chapter. Melina is originally from Oakland, California, and she is a single soccer mama of three children and resides in Los Angeles Crenshaw District. We hope you enjoy the show. I'm just here. Thank you for coming yeah. on. Thanks I for wait. having me. Dr. Abdullah. Thank you for joining us. We appreciate Thanks your time. Of course. Thanks for having me. We are very excited to have you here today. Uh, you know, we have obviously crossed paths through the labor movement, through actions, um, and we have gotten to know you over the last several years, in particular, of course, over the last year, in, in these actions, in your powerful speeches, through the media. We've gotten to know Dr. Melina Abdullah, the activist, the leader, and we wanted to engage today with you to get a sense of Melina Abdullah, the person, uh, the coming of age, Melina, and get to know you more about your background as well for you know affiliates, your brothers and sisters, who have, which you are a delegate for the Federation. So we were hoping to start off with that, uh, if you could share about your coming of age, as I understand it, in East Oakland, right? I was born in Oakland, California, in an area called Bonk Town in East Oakland. And in the 1970s, which is the Panther Cub generation, um, my parents were not Black Panthers, but we were in and around the Black Panther Party. And I'm still 29, so don't let the math fool you. Um, (laughs) But the time and place of my birth and uh, growing up really did form kind of my political awareness, right? So I don't think it's possible to be a Black child um, growing up in Oakland in the 1970s and not have some degree of political consciousness. It was just in the air. And so I recently talked to somebody who asked me, you know, when was your first protest? I have no idea. I have no idea what my first protest was. I have um, no idea when I came to the understanding that it's our what I call our sacred duty to raise our voices and to fight against injustice and to build towards the kind of world in which we want to live. And I got that um, from Oakland, from, you know, 
all of the people in my neighborhood and in my schools and, you know, just the folks who reared me along the way, as well as from my parents. And, you know, my mother was a teacher, an elementary school teacher. Um, She's now retired, but um, worked for many years as an elementary school teacher. And when she would get off work, she would come home. She would, you know, stay late and teach her babies um, beyond what the school required her to do. But then she would come home. And, you know, for most of my life, my mom was a single mom. And I would hear, we would hear her old Volvo station wagon hit the block. And all of the kids in the neighborhood would yell, time for school. And so after a really long day at her actual job, my mom would sit out on the steps with these kids and teach all the kids in the neighborhood to read. So she was what we know as a community other mother. And um, my biological father was a union carpenter. And I remember when I was young and he still lived in the house, getting up really, really early in the morning with him and eating breakfast with them because, you know, folks who are in construction have to be to work. I think he had to be to work at like seven. So I would get up real early, eat, eat breakfast with him and um, was always excited if he had been out the night before. And, you know, I shared this uh, a little bit with Ron that when he was out, would be at meetings and would say he was at a meeting, I'd say, what kind of meeting was it? And then I'd ask him and my eyes would get wide and I'd go, was it a union meeting? (laughs) Because (laughs) if it was a union meeting, what it meant is that on top of the refrigerator would be a wrapped up donut or pastry for me. So so I grew up with deep love for unions because it meant donuts for me. Um, And that was my rearing. I also, um, you know, lived in a neighborhood that, I think most from the mainstream would focus on the trauma of my neighborhood, right? So I came of age in the early 90s, right? And so coming of age, there was, my neighborhood had been hit hard by the crack cocaine epidemic. There was a lot of um, violence in our neighborhood. There was over-policing and police brutality and harassment in our neighborhood. So there was trauma that we suffered as, Um, young Black people in my neighborhood. But I think that it's also much more complicated than the trauma, right? We're we're bigger than our traumas. And um, my neighborhood was also a neighborhood that had a million kids in it, right? Like we were we, there was, you never had to look for kids to play with. They were like you, as soon as the sun came out, everybody was outside, right? And we had a great time during the summers. We would hop fences and steal plums off of people's fruit trees and, um, you know, have the best ding dong ditch games and hide and seek games. And it was just a really beautiful neighborhood in that way. And a lot of the parents in the neighborhoods were just like my mom, where it would help to parent us. They collectively parent us. And my grandparents lived across the street. My grandpa would open the garage door all summer and we would have Kool-Aid in the, in the garage and um, snacks in the garage for the kids who were playing. And it was just, you know, a really beautiful and complicated space to grow up, but I would not trade my rearing for the world. It was just, um, 
you know, there were wounds that I suffered, but they were so worth it because there was such magic and beauty and how I was raised. And then I moved to, to DC for, for college. I went to Howard and moved to LA for grad school. And, um, you know, that, that would be a much longer story. I had initially dropped out of traditional high school, but went back and, you know, finished and then went to Howard. Thankfully, Howard and HBCU, um, now everybody knows what Howard is, but um, because Kamala Harris is an alumna, Howard was able to, you know, see me as a whole person and admit me, even though I might not meet all of the standards that other folks did. They admitted me, they wound up giving me a full scholarship after the first year and I was um, remediated my first year at Howard and I had professors who um, refused to move me to remedial classes and instead kept me in their offices every day and taught me how to write. You know, it was really a beautiful transformation too. So I guess like if there's an overarching theme, I've had really important and beautiful and powerful and loving people in my life. Absolutely. You know, there's a lot. Thank you for sharing all that. There's a lot I want to get into there. But first, I want to start off with the donut piece. Funny story. We tried sharing, um, reforming at the Federation when we have meetings. We want people to be healthier, right? We want to promote healthy living. And we replaced donuts with fruits one day. Oh, my God. It was a revolt. Uh, <laughs> with our members, it was a... I kid you not. It was a revolt. You know, I... You know what's going on, or are we not paying enough in dues? You know, it was a whole th- <laughs> thing. So, so uh, the donut story from your father was was so funny in, in my head because it took me that like, yes, we cannot miss the donuts. Ever since then, you better believe I, I ha- we have donuts at yeah. those meetings. Um, uh, you could put fruit alongside the donuts, well, but you cannot cancel the donuts. Yep, yep. Now we. <laughs> That's exactly what we do. You have the choice now. <laughs> we will not make the choice. I said it's the only thing in the world I agree with cops on. Donuts are delicious. <laughs> <laughs> uh, she actually was with me yesterday, and, and she that is a true story. She was disappointed because there was no donuts. That's hilarious. Man. You know... Um, I'm excited to have you. I'll be honest with you. When uh, your uh, union, your local union, placed you as a delegate of the federation, I was I saw your name like, and I got excited because I'm I'm a quiet admirer of yours, right? I follow you for you know. I told you uh, yesterday, you know, about my granddaughters, you know, being uh, followers of BLM, but. That it's very, very important because this is a union podcast coming out of the Federation. And nobody would have ever thought that you had union roots, that you had union principle, that, you know, you actually walked a strike line. It's very important for me as a union leader, as the head of the Federation, to expose that to the general public, to our membership, to our delegation that Melina Abdullah is sister Melina to all of us because, you know, your upbringing and your father being a general laborer, a a carpenter, uh, the donut, the union meeting. 
but tell us, you know, because I want, I want young activists. I want our youth that are looking for a union career to know that you walked a strike line with your father. Tell us, tell them about that. Sure. So, I mean, I'm a proud union member now, right? And one of the greatest things um, about working um, at the California State University system um, in the in the system as a professor is I'm one of, you know, the privileged faculty members that gets to be a part of a union. And I think that there's no time more important than now to have a union that not only negotiates my salary and benefits, but as one who's also on the front lines of social and racial justice struggles, I need protection. I need to make sure that I'm not retaliated against for my work in the community as an organizer. And unions make me feel protected. And um, being a member of a union, I know that I can't be fired for saying Black Lives Matter, right? Um, and that comes, that understanding is deep for me because as I said, my dad, my, my father, and my mother too, because my mother was a unionized teacher, but my, my dad, and she was her union rep, but my dad was really, really involved in the Carpenters Union. You know, again, I don't remember my first protest, but I do remember being, you know, three or four years old and being on a picket line and being excited about wearing a yellow hard hat and marching around with a, a picket sign. And I appreciated not just the donuts, but the solidarity, right? The solidarity. And I remember that there was a union that was on strike for a long time. And I didn't really understand what that meant. But I also remember as a child going to a Halloween party while that union was on strike and people pitching in money. And then when we, um, there was a piñata. And when, the piñata, when we were doing the piñata, I remember my dad pulling me to the side and saying, don't take too much candy because the kids of the people who were on strike might not have had candy for a long time. And that sat with me, like that solidarity didn't just mean calling each other brother and sister, they did. And that also sat with me because the only other place I saw that happen was in my church. But it also meant behaving as if we're each other's sisters and brothers, right? So recognizing that, you know, we have to also share not just union resources, but our own resources. And in a lot of ways, it's really kind of an ethical principle, right? That it's the kind of world we want to live in. Unions are much more than, again, salaries and benefits. It's about saying we're a collective, that all of us are none of us, right? That we're going to struggle together. And what I'm also deeply encouraged by at this moment in our history is how so many unions are saying that outright. So my union, the California Faculty Association, written into our mission statement as of, I think it's been about two years now, is that we are a racial and social justice organization. So as much as we're about making sure we get fair wages and you know that we don't get messed over in our contracts, we also are about the struggle for racial and social justice. I'm a true believer that you have to understand the community 
and the people in that community before you can organize them into a union. Because you really won't know the personality of a worker unless you know their community and their struggles in that community. But I just, I just um, not finishing traditional high school and being a professor, if that doesn't encourage our youthful listeners, I don't know what does, because for me, that's just, that is just incredible. I, I just wanted to put that out. Thank you. So I did finish. I went back to traditional high school, but I had dropped out. So um, I did go back. And I think that I was allowed to go back and allowed to excel at you know Howard University because I had a lot of people who believed in me and not just my mom and not just my grandparents, but one of the things I really love about our people, about black people, about people of color, is that we don't have to be related by blood in order to see each other as family, right? So there's, <laughs> I saw a Facebook post once that said, you know, if you're black and you've known each other more than three years, y'all cousins, right? <laughs> because <laughs> that's, I, I that's act- so we do. <laughs> I actually can relate to that. I was at the Pettus Bridge uh, with two of my brothers who happen to be black, and a older black uh, man came up to us, and he said, "You all kin." And before we could, I could even say anything, right? My two, my the two guys I was with, right, said, "Hell yeah, why?" <laughs> and we just started <laughs> cracking up. Uh, that's hilarious. I think you you were alluding to the the power of uh you know we got family right uh, I was so I grew up undocumented um, and had the the benefit of uh, a family that you know loved loved me and supported me along the, along the way but I also had the benefit of my chosen family my friends that encouraged me uh, pushed me gave me resources and links of how to maneuver going. Um, Finishing college, right, without no access to any form of funds, government or otherwise, uh, as an undocumented student. What I hear from you, uh, Dr. Abdullah, is the power of community in your in the collective success, right, uh, from from your story, and cultivating that, um, and cultivating that throughout our journeys, really demystifying this sort of like myth of pulling ourselves by the bootstraps and and rugged individualism. But it's really a collective effort, um, you know, there's individual work to be done, but I, for one, you know, wouldn't be here without community. The role of community in the Black Lives Matter movement, I assume, you know, is key. Can you share some about the role of community in the work you do? Sure. So, you know, Black Lives Matter is built along the leadership principle that was developed by Ella Baker, Mama Ella Baker, you know, who was a tremendous organizer, actually also has union ties. Um, Her husband was part of the um, unionization of sleeping car porters. And so Mama Ella Baker developed a principle. She was the executive director of the SCLC, you know, when Martin Luther King was its head, right? And, or one of the heads, right? And so one of the things that she did to challenge a lot of the ministers in the civil rights movement 
is she would say that we don't need a leader-centered group. We need group-centered leadership. And so Black Lives Matter embraces that idea that we need group-centered leadership, right? So we need leadership that's collective. It can't just be one person. Um, it has to be you know, a mass of people who take ownership for the movement, who take responsibility for the movement, but also, you know, the, the benefits of the movement are going to be borne by the collective, right? And so we build a movement and believe in a movement where everybody understands. Now, it doesn't mean everybody does everything, right? But we understand what it is we bring to the table. So for me, you know, I feel like I'm a natural educator, right? I'm the, my mother is an educator. My brother is an educator. My sister is an educator. My grandmother, right? It goes all the way back, right? And so one of my gifts is uh, being an educator. But movements can't just be run by somebody who's good at education, right? Like every movement has a soundtrack. You do not want me on the mic singing, right? But put somebody like our member Chris Martin on the mic and you got a whole nother thing. So there has to be art embedded in the movement. And that's also leadership. We have a sister named Jan who was SEIU 99 and now works for UTLA. There is no better person to person organizer than sister Jan. Jan can get any person to do anything just by having a conversation with them. That is leadership. And then Baba Akili, nobody can get you fired up like Baba Akili. I can't even, you know, attempt to summon that energy that comes out of his voice, right? So group-centered leadership is really about community, is about collective, is it a, uh, it's about embracing the fact that all of us contribute to leadership and we build much stronger, more impactful, more enduring movements um, when we move in a collective. And it's the reason that Black Lives Matter, we're approaching eight years now. And we've been able to sustain ourselves because there's many, many, many of us who are driving this effort. Thank you. Yesterday, I told you a couple of stories about some Black workers at uh, UPS the first black uh, driver, and then uh, how a maintenance uh, brother was treated by his co-workers. And those are very important stories for you to know because you, I, I need you to carry them on. I need you to you know, be my voice of those, those stories for black workers. In my career, I experienced that discrimination. Black Lives Matter. I think they are very critical to the labor movement because together uh, we can accomplish so many things. And I'll give you an example of it. Currently, Amazon can destroy the labor movement. People and workers and, and union members aren't quite aware of it because it's so national now. It's, it's, uh, it's one of the most uh, one of the companies that, that people, you know, think good of, but the whole time the, the backstory is it's so bad for not only the American economy, but for the American worker. But right now in Alabama, 
in the first organizing drive of an Amazon fulfillment center. The lead in that organizing drive is Black Lives Matter. They are doing the field work, the door knocking, the house calls. How do you see Black Lives Matter and the benefit that your organization can have to the labor movement? Because I think it's one and the same. Yeah, so they're doing tremendous work in Alabama. That's Sister Cara McClure and her team out there really doing really important work. I think one of the misunderstandings about Black Lives Matter is that we're only here to protest Black death. You know, I want to be clear about what we're here to do. We are an abolitionist organization. We believe in upending unjust systems, right? We believe in bringing an end to um, systems that enable some folks to make billions of dollars in profits in the midst of a unprecedented health pandemic with an unprecedented economic fallout while others are living on the streets, right? Before we went into this pandemic in Los Angeles, we had 60,000 unhoused people. The estimate is that we're gonna be at over 200,000 unhoused people by the end of this pandemic. 200,000 people living on the streets, right? And so we need to think about absolutely how do we upend the system that allows for that. That is the height of injustice. That's immoral. I don't know how people can, you know, claim to um, be of any moral fabric and allow for a world and a society that has its people unhoused. If the United States were not the United States, the UN would come in and, you know, um, expose these atrocities. And so we absolutely wanna upend these systems. But the other side of abolition is also saying, well, if you don't want this, what do you want? And so I think that people think that we're just protesting black death, but what we're really doing um, as abolitionists is trying to figure out how to build the world of our most radical imaginings. You know, And I say radical because you know, we mean to get to the root of it, and we also mean that we can imagine things that we may have never lived before, right? We may have never lived in a world without poverty, but we don't live in a world of scarcity. There's no reason for the poverty other than somebody decided. Somebody decided that it's okay for Jeff Bezos to have billions of dollars while other people have nothing, right? And so we can transform this world. And so it is the work of Black Lives Matter to ensure that Black people, and by extension, every other person lives in a world where we have all of what we need and most of what we want. And unionization, having good jobs that pay good wages, that enable people to support themselves and their families, are at the very foundation of having a world in which that is of our most radical imaginings. And so we're gonna be on the front lines of every union fight, absolutely of the unionization of Amazon workers, but also when um, you know, we were part of the fight for black worker justice. You know, we sit 
across the table from people like Pastor Q, who's also a Black Lives Matter member, right? And constantly struggling for um, justice for workers. And that's, Black people aren't just Black people. We have class definitions. Most of us, almost all of us are working class as well. And so we have to struggle um, for our interests as working people. Yeah, I have a connection to Pastor Q. We've uh, been arrested twice together, so he's definitely a brother of mine. But I, I think that uh, I wholeheartedly agree with what you said, because I think that, again, our two, you know, the labor movement is is one and the same with Black Lives Matter. We just obviously worked on the Thousand Strong here a couple of weeks back. We we got some very positive uh, movement within the city to hire thousand black workers in the public sector. So because jobs is everything to our community on Monday. So our audience knows Baba Akili will be speaking on behalf of uh, the Labor Federation against union busting, the union busting firm that's uh, in Alabama with uh, fighting against Amazon workers is actually headquartered or one of their offices is headquartered here in Los Angeles. Um, they, we, they will be getting visited by the labor movement alongside their community partners and Black Lives Matter will be wa- marching side by side with me. And I'm very, very proud of that, sister. Thank you. We are too. And thank you so much for, you know, remembering that and reaching out to us and asking us to participate and recognizing that this is also part of the struggle that we're engaged in. And I don't know if you know, but the beginning of Black Lives Matter, you know, we raised a lot of money over the last year. But up until this, I'll call it a resurgence of Black Lives Matter, the most recent resurgence of Black Lives Matter, as folks were faced with the murder of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery, up until then, we had almost no money. Right. Black Lives Matter was financed by people who decided they won't go to Starbucks that day. Right. Or by me telling the kids, you know, we only eat home cooked meals because we don't have money to eat out. Right. And that's how Black Lives Matter was financed. And early, early on, it was the unions that kept us afloat. Right. When we needed to have a freedom ride to go out to be with the people in Ferguson, it was the unions who paid for our vans when we had the first ever movement for Black Lives convening, um, I remember just sending a super quick text to LaFonza Butler and saying, we need a bus, can you help us? And she texted me back and it was almost immediate. Um, When we didn't have water bottles, when we were doing an encampment that lasted 54 days, it was SEIU that said, hey, we can at least bring y'all some water bottles and a tent to Um, shield you from the sun. You know, we need to remember that there's always been a connection between Black Lives Matter and um, union partners, and it goes both ways, that we're going to also be there um, as much as we can to fight for the things that we need as um, working people and fight for the right to unionize. Absolutely. A few years ago, um, you know, a point you made earlier about the homelessness crisis, which is abhorrent and immoral. There was a Cuban delegation out of the UCLA Labor Center with Cristina Vasquez from Workers United uh, that, that came. And the Cuban leader, you know, looked around 
the streets and you know took it all in his first time here and what he took most out of the trip was i can't believe you know this country we hear about the united states the wealthiest country it's shocking to see people living in the streets your people living in the streets cuba poor as it may be uh, is able to house their folks and it just took him and it just I was very struck by his reflections and what he took away from the trip, Dr. Abula, and, and resonated with what you were mentioning earlier. What also resonated yeah. was your what you were just talking about, right? The personal sacrifice that comes with particular grassroots activism. I think any form of leadership, activism, and whatever movement it may be, uh, labor, environmental, etc., comes at a sometimes physical cost, comes at the expense of time with your family. And I remember a, a trip I took a couple years ago to Mississippi, a solidarity trip down to Mississippi. We were in the home of Medgar Evers. We were, being in the room was one of the most powerful thing in his home was one of the most powerful experiences in that you saw still the gunshots. You saw the ultimate sacrifice that he paid with his life in his activism. And so, of course, there's dimensions to sacrifice, the ultimate being one's life. On the short end, you know, you know, sacrificing time with your life, personal finances, you know, collectively putting in whatever it is to advance a movement. I know you yourself, one of the things I admire about you is you're a single mom to three, which can't be easy. How do you take care of yourself and as this a new generation of activists uh, emerges that personal sacrifice that sustainability uh, for the long run and in, in doing this work how do we go about that to sustain not just ourselves but our sisters and brothers in the movement and collectively move forward given that there is an element of sacrifice in this work yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up. There is sacrifice. There is sacrifice and the sacrifice is worth it. Like we sacrifice sometimes all the time. Our time is sacrifice. Our kind of desire. Some people try to find as much comfort as they can in oppression. And when you decide that you are going to fight for freedom, it means rejecting the notion that you're going to find a comfortable place in oppression that you are going to work, we are going to work to transform the world. And so there's a lot that comes with that. There's a um, price to pay for that. It's worth the price, but there is a price to pay. The way that we endure, I think, and make the sacrifices worth it is one, you know, it's back to that question around community and collective that, you know, we build what, Martin Luther King called a beloved community that it's hard work, there's costs, you know, there's definitely a toll taken. You know, in the last year, I've had Jackie Lacey, the former DA's husband, pulled a gun on me and pointed it at my chest and said, I will shoot you. My home has been swatted with my children in it, right? That means. You know, the police surrounded my home with AR-15s helicopter overhead and, you know, threatened me with them. They claim it was a, a, a white supremacist called in and said I was being held hostage, but I think they were complicit in it. 
there have been, you know, <laughs> lots of other kind of threats made, but it's not me alone. So, you know, I'll, I'll give the swatting incident as an example, right? So when the police came to my home, this was August of 2020, when the police came to my home and surrounded my home, told me I had to come out with my hands up, here I am, single mom of three children. I don't get scared, but that's the closest I've been to terrified. Um, so trying to figure out how to get my children into the safest room in the home, but then also lure the police away from the house so they wouldn't, you know, so my children could be as safe as possible. You know, all the time I'm thinking about Corinne Gaines, I'm thinking about how she was killed with her baby in her arms, and that's not going to be me. So initially, when the police were forming their space, um, you know, establishing their uh, skirmish lines, I actually didn't think they were there for my house, right? I thought they were there because sometimes shit goes, oh, sorry, I don't know if we can cuss on here. You totally sometimes can. Things- we'll just put the E on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> sometimes things go down in the neighborhood, right? Mm-hmm. And then, you know, one of my comrades was coming because we were going to a protest. He was like, there's hella police outside. And I was like, yeah, they're not here for me. But remember, they let him ride through the skirmish line and come up to my door and come inside my house. So I don't know how they could have thought that I was being held hostage, right? And have allowed that. But anyway, he comes to the house. So I peek out the front window. And when I peeked out the front window, two officers with assault rifles pointed them in the window at me. And I was like, oh, they're here for us. So I quickly like backed away from the window, turned to, you know, where there was a wall and got my children into the safest room in the house. But then also went on my social media, went on Instagram live. And I did something that is, you know, most security experts would say don't do, which is I gave out my home address and I said, everybody who hears me, I need you to come here right now. There was probably another five or so minutes of me trying to get the kids situated and trying to figure out how to do it. But, you know, they yelled, come everybody at my address, come out with your hands up. And so after the kids were situated and I got my comrade to make sure to stay with them, I reached out my hand first and I said, there's a phone in my hand. It's just a phone is what I'm yelling. You know, it's of course, much more urgent than that as I'm yelling it. And then I finally come out and I get to my walkway and one of my neighbors is on my walkway, black man, father lives across the street. And he's like, what are you doing? Go back in the house. And I'm like, no, my kids are inside. And he immediately got it. And he put his body right in front of me and his wife stood alongside me. And he said, well, if you're going, we're all going. And we walked to the police, which were, you know, down, you know, several houses down where the sergeant was on the loudspeaker. And we all walked with our hands up. And then I looked to my left and filling the street were neighbors, most of them black, but also non-black folks, right? Asian neighbor was out. Latinx neighbor was out, white neighbors were out filling the streets, filming 
making sure I was okay. And so, you know, I got there and, you know, it was clear that it was BS and they just were there to terrorize us, right? And I was able to go, but what stuck with me, and I'll get to the point, is that when we say things like we keep us safe, when we say things like police don't keep us safe, community keeps us safe, that was my understanding. That was my living of that. That was my realization of that, that that's not theory. You know, had my community not been there, I don't know if I would be speaking with you right now. So when you say what sustains us, what sustains me, what sustains my children is community. What sustains my children is after all of that went down, the sister who walked with me said, come on, let's have the kids come over. I'll make them some pancakes. And she did. And I went to my protest right after that, right? And, you know, other people, these lovely white moms who don't live directly in my neighborhood, but live adjacent to my neighborhood, saw it on social media. And that night came to my house and brought us cookies and plants and flowers and cards and said, this is from all the moms in the neighborhood down the way. And, you know, there were other community members, my, um, you know, my children actually were severely traumatized by that. And, you know, I remember my daughter screaming, mama, don't go out. And I don't want to become emotional, but they were, you know, petrified that I was going to be killed. People stepped up. My kids need therapy. We have now free therapy for my children. And I would say my kids, not just that trauma, but everybody really should get therapy, right? Mm -hmm. It's really a part of, especially coming out of a pandemic or being in a pandemic, we need you know, to attend to our mental health. But all of the things that sustain me are really, really come back to the first question you asked, which is about community, about beloved community. We had to leave my house for some time. We had to relocate because you know, this white supremacist had put our address out everywhere and somebody actually gave me their house. You know, she wasn't living in it at the time. And she said, come stay here. And we were able to do that because of beloved community. And then the, just practically some of the things that I do where I take a lot of uh, vitamins, I try to eat as healthy as possible, except for donuts. <laughs> and um, I take walks every day. And I've, I pledged to myself at the beginning of 2021 that I would never miss a day of walking or meditation. And I've missed a few days of meditation, but in all of 2021, I've never missed a day of taking a walk for at least half an hour, 45 minutes. Well, good. You know, I was going to ask you um, some policy stuff, but that was beautiful. And I think, you know, we're, we're right at our time, sister. And um, yesterday when we were talking, you said something that stuck with me. And uh, if you hear me say it, you know, I'll say where I got it from. But you said you want to create a movement and not a moment. And that is so profound. I just uh, uh, wanted to share that with you and, and let you know that... Uh, that, that last answer was incredible and very emotional. And uh, with that, I just want to thank you. 
but I want to publicly ask uh, you to come back on the and the show and uh, talk about policy, talk about some more serious things, and and uh, you know uh, just expose you to our 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 labor movement. I think that uh, you're a critical component of Los Angeles. I think you're a critical partner to have a relationship with. And uh, I see the future very bright for our organizations as one family. Yes, thank you so much. Thank you for welcoming me in. Thank you for the solidarity. Solidarity is the foundation of our labor movement. Thank you for um, this space. We wanna encourage all of our brothers and sisters and siblings in labor to join in the work of Black Lives Matter. We're working for a people's budget. We are working to make sure that we usher in progressive justice reform. We're working to build a world where our children and the generations to come can live and walk freely. And we welcome all of our folks into that work and they can plug in at blmla.org, blmla.org. And thank you so much, Brother Ron and Brother Hugo. Thank you for having me. This is a union town, a union town, all down the line. This is a union town, a union town, all down the line. This is a union town. Hey, this is President Ron Herrera. Thanking you and my co-host, Brother Hugo Romero, for joining us on this episode of Welcome to Uniontown. Town.